Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, before we go any further, so Eric, uh, just now, before we started recording, a uh, little, little peek behind the curtain, Eric and I talk before we start recording. Just a little, just a little heads up for people there. Uh, so anyway, uh, you mentioned something about how you want to see us branded as the Deontay Wilder of boxing podcast. So I'm kind of assuming that's because we're super hard hitting, right? No. Oh, God, no. Not at all. Uh, no, it's it's because we do nothing of note segment after segment. But people have to keep listening on the off chance that we'll have one spectacular moment before the podcast is through. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There you go. Yes. So maybe that'll happen this episode. Maybe it won't. I mean, I, I assume it'll be self-evident to everybody right. when it does, perhaps. So, And so when that happens, I guess you're going to let rip with a... I can't even do it. I'm not even <laughs> going to attempt to do it. A bomb squad. <laughs> that was the wimpiest bomb squad I've ever heard. Oh, I the sure no hope way. Deontay does not listen to this and hear the way you just desecrated his, uh, his catchphrase. I, I would like to do that. I would like for us to sit down with Deontay one time and like... <laughs> Okay, let's let's do it together, and then he he lets rip, and I'm like bomb squad. <laughs> this is actually this would be a very funny bit, like a, a Sports Center commercial kind of thing of Deontay <laughs> Wilder teaching a uh, a proper Englishman how to say bomb squad. I like yeah. it. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Uh, before we get into the meat of the show this week, we have some news to pass along. Uh, as you know, this podcast is free, but a subscription to Showtime is not, at least not usually. However, if you don't have Showtime, listen up. We have a special offer. New customers should go to Showtime.com slash Try30. That's T-R-Y-3-0. And enter the code SHOWBOX. That's S-H-O-B-O-X to start a 30-day free trial. Uh, but don't wait. This offer expires December 31st. Once again, go to Showtime.com slash Try30 to take advantage of this special offer. But as Eric notes, the podcast is free to all because we can only give it away, basically. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, but, but we do have a great episode. Uh, I'm really excited about this week. Uh, we are very, very excited indeed to welcome a first-time guest from the Showtime family, Hall of Fame ring announcer Jimmy Lennon Jr. will join us to talk about his life and career and some of his takes on the sport of boxing. Really, really looking forward to that. Uh, we will also preview some fights. We'll talk about the biggest news in the sport over the past week. But we start with the explosive bomb squad ending that Deontay <laughs> Wilder delivered on Saturday night. I guess, see, if he'd done that, see, he would have lost. If he was all bomb squads, then that would be it. <laughs> no. It wouldn't have happened, would it? But, in fact, but he isn't, fortunately. He has a whole other way of delivering it. And he delivered a massive right hand on Saturday night to defeat Luis Ortiz, the latest clip to add to that growing highlight reel of his. Indeed. He now has two knockout of the year contenders this year. I'm not sure which one was better. Um, I think since Jimmy Lennon Jr. was ringside for both, maybe we'll ask him about that. Uh, but yes, at the MGM Grand on Saturday evening, starting a little after midnight on the East Coast, because hashtag boxing, <laughs> Wilder struggled for six plus rounds, might not have won a single one of those rounds. And then all of a sudden, at the end of round seven, one perfect right hand a straighter, shorter punch than we're used to seeing from Wilder, put Ortiz down, and he couldn't quite get all the way up before Kenny Bayless reached the count of 10. And that was it. 
the prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, same result as the first time, but a little quicker in the rematch. Uh, immediately after it ended, uh, I tweeted that Wilder may or may not be the biggest heavyweight puncher ever, but he certainly believes in his power more yeah. than any heavyweight in history because he landed nothing of note for half a fight and didn't seem the least bit worried about it. Uh, Kieran, what do you think of that take? Uh, what are your thoughts on the punch that ended it? And did you give Deontay any of the first six rounds? I think that's a very solid take, actually. Um, I actually watched the fight twice uh, on Saturday night and then again on Sunday morning because I was a bit baffled by it all, really. Mm. You know, um, because like you said, like Wilder appeared to be way, way, way behind on the cards. Um, Ortiz was presumably fighting pretty much the way he wanted to fight, I think, probably. I, I bet at the end of six, Luis Ortiz was pretty happy with the way things were going. Um, and yet, like you said, Deontay never looked anxious, did he? He never looked like, oh, God, I can't figure this guy out. Or what am I going to do? What adjustments gonna, am I going to have to make? He didn't look puzzled. He, he, he was just, yeah, it did. It looked like he was waiting for an opportunity, like he was confident that at some point he'd have Ortiz where he wanted him, confident that at some point he'd land that right hand. He was just confident, even mm. as he didn't appear, like you said, to be doing a great deal. And and yeah, you have to figure out that, that a large part of that confidence comes from his innate belief that all he needed was one shot and that would be it. But at the same time, you know, sometimes how you look at some guys, some fighters, and you, and you could tell, oh, they're just wanting to load up on that big right hand and or they're just waiting for one punch. He, at the same time, even like he it looked like he had that belief in that right hand it didn't feel as if he was only waiting for that. Like it, mm -hmm. it did kind of feel a little bit as if he was, he, he was trying to like adapt to Ortiz a little bit and figure him out slowly and, and so on. And so you asked how I scored it. I kind of sort of thought about scoring the fifth round for him Okay. Because at that point, I, it, you know, sometimes you're almost looking to give a guy a round. Right, and, right. and Ortiz wasn't winning any of the rounds by so much. And he did catch him a bit with a hook that did wobble him a bit. I thought, oh, okay, that might have been the, the, the your best you know, punch so far. And I did actually give him the sixth because I thought he was a little bit busier there. And, and even had he not scored that knockout, I would have given him the seventh. I thought he was clearly winning the seventh, uh, Deontay Wilder. Um, but... If you had given him, if you had given Luis Ortiz all six rounds up until that point, I would have had absolutely no complaint at all. And I think most of the people sitting ringside, most of the writers did either that or or had him or had Ortiz five one. I think six zero or five one. But um, but then yeah, like you said, one hell of a finish, a a much shorter and straighter right hand, as you said, than we're used to seeing from him. And you know what, I I really. I thought it was a real treat hearing Lennox Lewis, who is no slouch in the right-hand department himself. Right. Um, he was genuinely salivating over that punch when they uh, when Fox finally got round to showing a replay of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he was I, I the way he was like super excited to see how straight and short it was, and and I really liked that. And Ortiz was gone; like he had the eyes of the confused drunk who is trying to process how the bar floor has suddenly lifted up and smacked him in the face like his his gaze was he had no idea what had happened eh? right. i mean even when he got up he had no idea it was it was a terrific ko but you know so for, anyway I, what was interesting is i think probably up through the first six rounds the narrative 
was probably that Wilder, you know, maybe was looking a bit lost. But at the end of it, the narrative kind of changed to, ah, he was patient and he was clever and he was right. waiting to get Ortiz just where he wanted him. But, yeah, look, up until that point, I thought Ortiz had been doing extremely well. He was making the fight. He was fighting at the pace he wanted to. Um, he looked comfortable um, until he got knocked out. Uh, he, again, showed, I think, that not only did he belong in there, but he if he's not part of the top four he's he's not far off that that he's extremely good fighter and a reminder that he performed extremely well the first time around which sort of makes me think about this tweet that we got right before the fight from tim spears Um, and he listened to last week's podcast in which we discussed the long odds against ortiz and he wrote quote after a fight decided by inches why do people's perceptions change by miles eric said ortiz should be a six to one underdog but why same thing happened with Canelo, where some people put him number one pound for pound while leaving Triple G unranked. Um, so as it turned out, if you had bet on Ortiz, you lost. Uh, and if you bet on Wilder, you won. But, you know, fair enough, actually. Um, all the talk was about Deontay Wilder afterwards. But given how well Luis Ortiz was doing for almost seven rounds, uh, what do you think about those comments? Yeah, it, it's, it was an interesting uh, tweet that, that he uh, directed our way. And you have to take it case by case, uh, I will be the first to say that boxing fans and experts often overreact to one fight or one punch. Uh, They write someone off because of one loss or they crown somebody the goat because of one win. Um, I don't want to get too sidetracked with Canelo and Triple G, but um, I'll note that I removed Triple G from my pound-for-pound top 10 because he didn't look anything like a top Mm. pound-for-pound fighter against Derevyanchenko, and it wasn't just one fight. It was a culmination of a couple of years of looking a little worse in every big fight. And uh, yeah, he fought about even up with Canelo just 14 months ago, but they're not the same fighters now. And Mm. I'm surprised some people still have Triple G around five or six on their pound for pound list. Mm. Um, But the point is, perceptions change by miles if we keep seeing evidence in the interim that one guy's getting better and the other guy isn't. Uh, Wilder stopped Ortiz the first time. He's looked mostly great since, uh, and I say mostly because there were a lot of rounds against Tyson Fury where he didn't, but Mm. there's no shame in getting outboxed by Tyson Fury in a bunch of rounds. Um, Clearly, Wilder has been on an upward trajectory, and Ortiz hasn't. Right. On Saturday night, Ortiz didn't look like a 6-1 to underdog at all. Until suddenly he did. Uh, (laughs) The odds were logical to me. The evidence of their first fight and everything we'd seen from both fighters since told me that eh, about 85 times out of 100, Wilder catches Ortiz and knocks him out. Um, So, you know, it was correct not to write Ortiz off, uh, to, to give him a chance to think he had a shot in this, but... If you bet on him at about four to one or even five to one, eh, I don't think you were quite getting good enough odds, even if maybe you were feeling very good about your bet at the halfway Mm. mark. Mm. Um, So as expected, once people were done watching replays of the knockout, which, as you said, we had to wait a little bit for him. But then we finally got him (laughs) and we watched him over and over again. And uh, we we were thrilled and delighting in the power of Deontay Wilder. Um, Finally, once we were done with that, the conversation turned to. Wilder Fury 2. Did you see anything, Kieran, in Wilder Ortiz 2 that shifts your perception of how the Fury rematch will play out? So this might be a bit of a ramble because the short answer 
is I don't really know. And when I really don't know, I just like to say a lot of words. And so then people don't maybe don't even notice. But so this, this is why the podcast is free. This is exactly, exactly. It's not why it's still going, but it's why it's free. Um, so like I said, I was a bit baffled in a way by the fight. And, and here's what I mean by that. And here's how, for me, it sort of relates to how I'm thinking about Wild of Fury 2. So I guess there are two ways of looking at what unfolded. One is that Wilder stunk out the joint for six rounds and then just, you know, came up with the KO. And had he not had that one punch KO power, who knows what might have happened and he might well have lost. Um, And I guess if that's the way you saw it, maybe if you saw Wilder who was looking like a bit confused by what Ortiz was doing, um, maybe a bit tentative, um, you might like you might be inclined to think that Wilder would be in all kinds of trouble in the rematch with Fury, especially as, as you sort of mentioned, you know, there were a number of rounds there where he was comprehensively outboxed the first time around. Um, but there's another way of looking at it, um, <laughs> which is you know, Sean Porter at one point, I think after five rounds, they went to um, the, uh, uh, the, the desk there and Sean said he thought he was, Wilder was setting traps and he was getting ready to, right. to, to, to set a trap for that right hand. And, um, Maybe that other way of looking at it is that on Saturday, Wilder showed us that maybe he's adding another string to his bow, that he's he's trying to be more than a seek and destroy guy, that he's developing some patience, that he's learning not to overcommit, you know, and you could look at that and say, well, he was doing a bit better in the fifth round and in the fourth and better in the sixth and in the fifth and much better in the seventh. And so maybe he's just learning to maybe size a guy up and and, you know, not overcommit. And he knows that he does have that luxury of that incredible right hand. But, you know, maybe he's also trying to figure out a way to be a little bit, you know, sort of more varied in his approach. And given that, as he's already found to his uh, cost, nobody is really going to be very successful against Tyson Fury if you just go in there and start winging at him because you're just going to swing at empty air a lot of the time. Um, and so maybe he's, he's learning to dial it back a little bit. And, and just pick his spots a bit more. And if that's the case, I don't know. I don't know that that's the right way to fight Tyson Fury. I'm not sure what the right way is to fight Tyson Fury. He's such a, an enigma, such a unique uh, uh, opponent. But it does make me think, hey, maybe actually because he ended up ending the fight the way he did, I'm, gonna, I'm taking slightly the glass half full mm-hmm. uh, approach to it. I'm thinking, well, you know what? Maybe he is trying to like... Be a bit more varied, a bit more interest, and a bit more sort of adaptable, and maybe that adds a little bit more intrigue to the rematch. But I don't know. I mean, did you come away with any different thoughts than beforehand? Um, well, first off, just to to address uh, some of what you just said, um, you're you're definitely a little more glass half full on this performance mm. than I am. Although, you know, you're the one who watched the fight a second time Sunday morning, and I did not, and I didn't give either the fifth or sixth round to Wilder, although mm-hmm. certainly yeah. he had his moments in those. And my recollection of the seventh round, even, um, I don't know if I'd made up my mind how I was going to score okay. it. I kind of, I kind of forgot, uh, in, based on what right. happened at the end. I, I didn't put a lot of thought into it, but I do recall a moment I thought just. I don't know, 15, 20 seconds before the knockout where it seemed like Ortiz landed a really good combination. Um, right. So so that's sort of what stood out to me. I don't remember the two and a half minutes leading up to it and whether Wilder was way ahead in the round prior to that. So um, point being, I'm not as sure as Sean Porter uh, that, that Wilder was setting traps. I will definitely say 
I was, I guess impressed would be the word, but I definitely taking note of his patience. That was mm. clearly a part of his game plan, whether he was specifically setting Ortiz up for that right hand or not. I'm not sure, but he definitely seemed to have in his mind, this guy is dangerous. We know he's dangerous. I think if I just let this go a few rounds and, and bide my time, he's going to wear tire a little bit and make a mistake. Mm-hmm. I do think at the very least that that was part of the plan was to be patient and uh, know that Wilder would still be strong and have his stamina halfway through the fight and Ortiz might not. So that that's my take on, on just sort of his performance and the way it played out. How that impacts the rematch with Fury... I'm not sure. I mean, th- this rematch remains absolutely fascinating to me. Right. We we know for a fact that Fury can tie Wilder in knots with his boxing skills. We know for a fact that Wilder can turn out Fury's lights with one punch. <laughs> and we know that no matter how poorly it's going for Wilder, he won't get discouraged and he'll keep pressing forward. And we know that no matter how perfect a punch Wilder lands, Fury has a chance of recovering. <laughs> um, I couldn't find any odds on the rematch as of Sunday morning. I would guess it'll be close to even money with Fury as a slight favorite. But all in all, I, I kind of think Wilder Ortiz 2 kept the Fury Wilder 2 outlook about the same. Like, mm. that, you know, to me, Wilder's strengths and weaknesses were both on display against Ortiz in, in equal measure. Mm. And of course, the, the other factor is I think it was quite, it appeared fairly clear that as much as Deontay said, that he wasn't particularly hurt in the first Ortiz fight. He was showing him the respect mm-hmm. toward an opponent who he knows can really hurt him and can really crack. For all that Fury keeps saying he's going to knock people out, that's not what Tyson Fury does. It's the, right. the bigger the bigger worry is you know not looking stupid against him or being outboxed against him. So even even if he is like got um, adopting more patient, I wouldn't expect him to fight exactly the same way or try right. to fight exactly the same way against Fury as against Ortiz. But I agree with you. I, I think. Tis an intriguing uh, rematch, and all the more so for what has happened with both fighters in the interim, yeah. as well as what happened in the first fight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Well, there were uh, several results uh, to note on the Wilder Ortiz undercard. Um, for starters, the Luis Neri Emmanuel Rodriguez fight we were looking forward to was canceled uh, when Neri missed weight by one pound and Rodriguez declined to cut a deal, which. I kind of admire. Few fighters will give yeah. up the payday even when faced with an unfair situation like this. Uh, among those fighters who won't give up the payday, uh, we saw one on display, ben- Brandon Figueroa, whose opponent, Julio Seja, missed weight by four and a half pounds, uh, and the fight went ahead anyway, and it was far and away the best fight of the undercard. A 12-round barn burner that threatened CompuBox records uh, and ended in a split draw. For better and worse, Figueroa reminded me of his brother Omar here, uh, making a fun action fight, but looking very flawed in the process. Although, in his defense, he was fighting a much bigger guy Mm. who presumably didn't kill himself to make weight and had some advantages because of that. Um, We also saw Leo Santa Cruz win a ho-hum decision over Miguel Flores to win some stupid vacant belt at 130 pounds. (laughs) And Eduardo Ramirez scored an upset fourth-round knockout of Ledwan Barthelemy to open the show. Uh, hit me with any and all undercard takes, Kieran. Well, the one that I, I want to focus on, the one that interested me the most after Neri Rodriguez fell through, um, was uh, the Brandon Figueroa fight. And not least because I selected Figueroa on my 25 and younger draft a few months ago. Um, all I know is the likes of 
Murajanak Madaliev and Javante Davis better be wary because Figaro is now the second guy from my list after Mario Barrios <laughs> to come perilously close to getting knocked off. Um, it's funny. At first, I was I was really quite enjoying his performance. I mean, I agreed with Lennox, who I actually I thought Lennox was on point very all, all throughout the evening, actually, on commentary. Um, and I, I, I agree with him when Lennox was saying, Early on, God, he should just be boxing this guy. He doesn't need to be getting stuck in there and, and getting into a fight. But I kind of, I liked it because I was thinking to myself, oh, this is great. You know, he wants to prove that he's not just a pretty boy. He wants to prove sometimes you got to, Oscar had to do that a couple of times as well. Mm-hmm. That you you got to prove that you can just dig the toes into the canvas and get in there and get into a fight. But But it did become very clear that, you know, once he was down there in the trenches, he couldn't get out or say I wouldn't let him out. Um, and, and then it became not so much of a, Hey, look, I can fight as to, Holy crap. I've got a really big fight on my hands. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I said in our preview that this would be a good litmus test, uh, where Figueroa stood. And on one level you, you could say, well, okay. It shows that he's not yet at that top level. When you look at like, say had just lost to Rigondo, he'd lost, you know, three of his previous five, but it's really hard to forget that four i mean four and a half pounds holy moly you know um i mean that's really that really distorts i think the uh uh you know what we saw and that's no wonder that 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 figueroa basically couldn't move say or get him out of there even while landing some very clean punches um so there's sort of a little bit of an asterisk there hopefully young figueroa will learn something by that um possibly a don't take a fight with a guy who missed weight by that much um and and b if you if that is what's if you are going to do that then don't necessarily go into the trenches with him because the guy's going to be strong because he hasn't you know forced himself to make weight so uh and maybe he'll learn yeah you know sometimes there are times to fight there are times to box and it's okay to box sometimes and, and not get into a brawl um so yeah on that one level you would look at that and think well he's not up at the level of emmanuel neverete or a vargas or, or those guys at the top of that division and he probably isn't but at the same time, you know, hopefully he sort of learned a lesson there and um, he'll be better for it, I hope. Um, so uh, not all the action uh, was in Las Vegas. Uh, at the same time that Wilder and Ortiz were squaring off um, and Ortiz was indeed, as we said, threatened for a while to score a major upset. Um, at Fantasy Springs in Indio, California, Rene Alvarado did score a major upset. Um I did not see this coming at all. I don't mind admitting. Uh, Alvarado avenging a previous loss to Andrew Cancio with a TKO win at the end of the seventh round. Like I said, I gave Alvarado virtually no chance in this fight at all. I was really surprised. Um, How impressed were you, Eric, by this performance? Very, very. All in all, start to finish, I thought this was the performance of the weekend. Um, First of all, it it was a fun-ass fight. Uh, One-sided, but really good if you like the violent aspects of the sport uh, which you know that's a big part of boxing (laughs) appeal uh but man alvarado was quick accurate firing combos he didn't look like any sort of a journeyman or an opponent he was just completely dialed in and he never let cancio have control or, or get comfortable uh as sad a homecoming as it was for Cancio, um, and you just had to feel awful for the guy. He was having this fairy tale year, and then mm-hmm. nothing was working on Saturday night. But as sad as it, that was, that's how great you had to feel for Rene Alvarado uh, and for our boy Chocolatito celebrating at ringside. Um, I don't know if this is repeatable for Alvarado. Mm. I, you know, I seen a bit of him before i watched uh rewatched some of the highlights of his his loss to cancio the first time um i didn't think he had this in him um but 
if this was a one-time thing, if uh, if it's not repeatable, good for him for looking like a championship-level fighter for for one night anyway. Yeah, like you, I really did not see this coming. No. Uh, one other fight to discuss from the weekend, speaking of things I didn't see coming, uh, I have to issue an apology to John <laughs> Ryder. I sold him way short in his fight with Callum Smith. A couple people on Twitter who followed Ryder's career more closely than I have told me that he would give Smith a fight. And did he ever, going the distance in a razor-close fight in Liverpool, uh, though it was Smith who emerged with the victory by scores of 117-111 and 116-112 twice, those scores weren't really fair to Ryder. Uh, I had it 114-114 myself with Ryder taking the last two rounds on my scorecard to pull even. How did you see it, Kieran? Oh, yeah, I scored it exactly the same as you, Uh, 114-114, and... uh, also the same as you, I had Ryder getting the draw based on the last two rounds. Um, it was funny. It was like for a lot of that fight, I, I felt this was a case of, of Smith struggling with an awkward, determined, shorter opponent. But I kept thinking that once he got on track, everything would be fine. Um, you know, that even though I've, Ryder was putting up a strong performance, he, he wasn't giving me the sense initially uh, that he was actually likely to pull off the the upset. But Every time I thought Smith was ready to pull away, back came Ryder. And, mm. and, and over those last two rounds, I really did think the upset was on the cards. Um, uh, you know, Glenn McCrory commentating for ringside speculated that, you know, Smith was having some trouble making way. And um, Ryder's corner said that he was super weak. And he did look it at the end there. Um, so I don't know if that's been an issue for Cam Smith or not. Um, but don't want to take anything away from Ryder. But I'll tell you what, the thought that I had, after we've talked about, about this as a possibility... After that fight and after that performance, I think we know who Canelo Alvarez's next <laughs> opponent is going to be. Yeah, yeah, may, maybe that uh, Callum Smith showed him just what he wanted to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, these these last two fights we discussed uh, with uh, results and performances we didn't see coming, they really uh, underline, um, you know, that... Uh, we may be the host of this podcast, but uh, we don't always know what the heck we're talking about. May- maybe we should uh, bring on a guest who, who does know what he's talking about. We are joined now by somebody who had a ringside view of the action in Las Vegas on Saturday night, and indeed has been ringside, and in the ring, actually, for many of the biggest boxing events over the last quarter century and more. He is an inductee of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. It says a lot about him that he's just about the only person in this sport of ours who is known as classy. Joining us now from Las Vegas, the one and only Jimmy Lennon Jr. Jimmy, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you, Karen. What a nice introduction that was. And uh, yeah, it was a, a, a wonderful night last night. We had some interesting action and uh, I was lucky enough, as always, to be sitting ringside after I introduced the fighters. That's one of the best parts of my night is sit down and watch it unfold. Yeah, I imagine so. And we're we're uh, ourselves lucky often to be ringside for these fights, but you uh, usually have an, an even better seat than uh, than Kieran and I do. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of questions we want to ask about various highlights of your Hall of Fame career. But uh, I think last night's fight is a perfect place to, to start with that uh, Deontay Wilder seventh round knockout of Luis Ortiz. Um, Kieran and I were ringside for Wilder's previous fight against Brazil, but we weren't in Vegas uh, for this rematch with Ortiz. You were at both of those spectacular knockouts. How does the right hand that erased Ortiz compare, in your view, to the Brazil knockout? Do you, do you think one was more sensational than the other? You know what? I, in my opinion, uh, I look at last night's big right hand as more sensational because 
he, he was just, he, he only threw, I think, two of them all night. He really, right. yeah. he landed one. And that was it. And you could see him just loading, you know, waiting for the right moment to, to, to pull the trigger on that right hand. And it happened. And it shocked, it was shocking because also Ortiz has a heck of a good chin. I'm not sure about Brazil's chin, uh, but mm. I do know that Ortiz has a heck of a chin. And he just went down like uh, the old days, they would say, a sack of potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was it was really it was really a shock to everybody. One punch, the fight was over. Right. Yeah, and that's a good point that maybe this knockout merits more knockout of the year consideration because uh, we we know Ortiz can typically take a punch pretty well. That's a that's a good distinction. I mean, there's a, a lot of talk these days about whether Wilder is the biggest heavyweight puncher ever. Uh, most people, at least say he's the hardest hitter since a prime Tyson. Uh, you were ringside for plenty of Tyson fights. W- what's your take on that comparison? Yeah, it, it you know, so different because, you know, they had such a different build, such a different style. Could, couldn't be more opposite. Um, you know, it was just so exciting to see a, a, a Tyson fight because I was, uh, would say that during his days, the most exciting punch in boxing was a Mike Tyson hook. And the second most was when he threw it and missed because the whole crowd was just <laughs> kind of going an uproar because it was just so exciting to see those punches fly. They were so quick and they came from nowhere when he was at his prime with Wilder a little bit. It seems like his opponents know it's coming and he's gearing up for it. The fans know that right hand is coming and uh, it looks like most of the time it's actually landing. Um, so, you know, a very different style really hard to determine in my opinion which is harder mm-hmm. but absolute wilder is up there amongst the hardest punching uh, heavyweights ever yeah while we're in the kind of like comparison of eras um so obviously we just had wilder ortiz too and as a result of the way it went we will have fury wilder too next year uh, we've got ruiz joshua too coming up in just a couple of weeks would you say this is as interesting and exciting as the heavyweight division has been certainly in the 2000s and perhaps for quite a bit longer than that. Yeah. Uh, Karen, I, you know, I was just thinking that last night of, of what a time this is when rematches are occurring, the heavyweights are good. They're fighting each other. We, uh, you know, the ages are pretty good. Uh, you know, they're not all over the hill. There are some good young fighters and then we have some good young heavyweights coming up. So, you know, it's been a long time. I think you, you might have to go, uh, far back before you see such an exciting time. But, you know, I've been saying this for years now because seeing Tyson Fury and, and Wilder when they were in their 20s and, and, you know, looking good, and then Joshua, of course, um, and then here we have Andy Ruiz in the mix. You know, I've been saying it for a while. We're lucky we have some good young heavyweights who are willing to fight each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've got to give credit to Wilder. He, he really has always been willing to fight anybody travel anywhere take on the best he wants to fight often and uh, you know an olympian as well so there's a lot to like about him and he really seems to love what he's doing in in the boxing and so I, I i think it's really great and you look at andy ruiz and what a charming person he is yeah. he's really captured the attention of a lot of folks and so yeah it's a great great time i think it's a great time for boxing in general but the heavyweights is especially good I know it's always hard to sort of give this assessment before 
careers are all over but looking at these guys and you mentioned them all do you do you have a sense that in let's say 10 15 years time we're going to be adding any of these guys to the list of all-time great heavyweights oh yeah that's that's a that is a tough question um i think it's still to be seen i i think Mm. you know i i think we're going to have to they're going to have to fight each other, you know, be tested. Some of these rematches are important. Mm. You know, Wilder could be, if he continues, you know, his record is unbelievable with the number of knockouts. Uh, you know, if he can beat Fury and should it come down to him fighting either Joshua or Ruiz and becoming unified, uh, undisputed world champion, I think, you know, you, you'd have to consider him as looking at, at one of the all-time greats. As we mentioned previously, he's one of the all-time great punchers Mm -hmm. and if he if he can do that and even if fury can do that too so i think the potential is there i think it is so let's go uh, way back to the beginning, Jimmy. Uh, you you grew up with an iconic ring announcer for a father. I presume he took you along to a few fights as a kid, uh, or at least as a young adult. Do you have a favorite memory of attending a fight as a kid with your dad? <laughs> a lot of them, you know, you guess properly. I uh, I went to many fights when I was a kid. I, I, I learned how to score the fights as a kid, since ringside and making a chart and scoring the fight uh we we would watch the fights at home and you know i thought as a little kid i thought everyone's dad was on tv so sometimes we'd watch (laughs) we turn the channel i I didn't know the difference uh until later and i became to respect it more uh you know as a kid we would go and uh just sit ringside the ushers would watch after us uh when my dad was in the ring i have uh Memories of, uh, you know, small little riots occurring and being told, you know, if it gets rough, get under the ring. <laughs> I had my instructions because the Olympic Auditorium was a pretty rough place right. uh, in downtown LA. Um, you know, I used to go to the wrestling, too, and I remember um, having a birthday party. All my buddies, we had a special box seats in the, in the wrestling uh, fights. And one time, my dad was actually involved in the wrestling match as they attacked him. <laughs> <laughs> So much because in those days you, you really you know it was supposed to be very very real and and nothing acting about it but uh some of the great fighters i saw mondo ramos indian little red lopez was uh you know one of my favorite fighters. um and uh yeah so that was a major part of my upbringing and it wasn't until i finished college and had a little extra time that i was kind of convinced and lured into giving it a shot and i wasn't sure about it but i went to interview the fighters. I assisted my father until one time I was able to get into the ring and open the, the, the couple of fights. And uh, I kind of just took off from there as people were very encouraging. And, you know, my father was so well-loved. I think it helped hmm. me because I was more accepted as opposed to compared. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. you know, I'm very fortunate that the, I think the fans were very kind to me. Yeah. Following up from that. So my yeah. understanding is that you you had you know you sort of hinted at it you you had no intention of really following in your father's footsteps i think i think he became a teacher even after college but um how long did it you know did you keep teaching did you keep having another job for a while was it a gradual thing or did you plunge into it when you decided to do the ring announcing thing you know how, how or did you have other jobs how, how long did it take you before you really segued sure. into doing this no i think it was a gradual thing um and i also make note that my father had five children and I'm the youngest and I was named junior for 
you know, I would, uh, I would never wait to name a third or a junior. <laughs> I can't wait, but and somehow I'm, I was the most like him. I, I looked the most like him. I, I ended up taking after him. So it was almost like it was destiny for me, but I definitely, uh, studied education and psychology at UCLA, became a teacher, um, at a small private school, became the head of the school too. And so I was able to do that for a, about 25 years and announce oh. on weekends and at night at the same time. And around 10, 12 years ago, I ended up um, just saying that's too much. I had to choose one. And so fortunately, boxing announcing became it. But yeah, it was a gradual, very, very slow introduction to the sport. And I appreciated that. Um, and it was a busy life doing both at the same time, where you know, whether it would be at nights or I chose to announce fights. But that's my first love and passion is working with young people. So really, just 10 or 12 years ago, when we were seeing you do all these big fights, you were, you were also teaching or, or being a head teacher at a school, really, as recently as that? As recently, I'm not the best with years, but 10, I mean, 12, you know, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, wow. absolutely. I, I did both of them. And um, it, yeah, it was, a, it was a busy time. And uh, I... Uh, I enjoyed worlds and enjoyed them very much. What did your students think about that? Did they know about your other life? Well, yes, you know, some were boxing fans and 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 they were impressed and liked it and liked to talk to me about it. But you know, that would quickly fade when I would be getting to the lesson or have to do some discipline. <laughs> and and then others, you know, didn't didn't follow it so much. But they got a kick out of it when it was a big fight. And but you know, I remember I think it was after the. I think it was after the Tyson Razor Ruddick fight. And I remember doing the fight and then coming back and just, you know, it was a huge fight. You know, the world was watching. And uh, I remember coming back and the next day I'm wiping down tables, you know, after lunch and <laughs> being grounded a little bit because you know, this is a, you know, a whole different world. So it was really like two different worlds. But as I said, I, I love them both. And I, um, uh, I did enjoy chatting with, with with my kids about it, and every so often I'd bring a student to the fights with me, and that was kind of a special thing too. Wow, ah, wow. very cool. Um, so, as someone who's been watching you do this for several decades, um, one thing that always sounds a little strange to me is is when you're doing a non Showtime card and you don't say it's Showtime. I'm curious, have you ever gotten mixed up and blurted out the it's Showtime phrase on another network, or do you at least have to pause and remind yourself what catchphrase you're using on a given night? <laughs> That's very funny, because you nailed it. You're exactly right. I miss saying it, too, and it's hard for me. <laughs> and I, I have to. I do have to make a, a real strong note not to say it, because I build up in a cadence similar to a phrase. Right. I can't say right. it's Showtime. And I sure miss it. But, uh, you know, it is what it is, and I have to definitely make a mental note not to break into my routine of it's showtime. <laughs> did, you, did you ever develop a, a catchphrase as a teacher, like when it was a pop quiz? Was there an it's, it's quiz time? Uh, did, you, did you build up to it that way? or? <laughs> no, I never did do that. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But we had, you know, for those who knew I was a, a, a ring announcer, we had some fun times. I think some of our jokes come a little bit more at home. Um, gotcha. But, uh, yeah. It's dinner time. <laughs> 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 so um, among your... 
I mean, I've got countless experiences at the fights at this point. Uh, I imagine working the Chavez-Haugen fight in front of, what was it, 135,000 fans or something in Mexico must be unique. Uh, I mean, what do you recall of that atmosphere? And what is it like speaking into a microphone in the middle of the ring in front of that many people, that many passionate people? Yeah, and, and with most of them not speaking my native language. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, yeah, I, 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 you know, people talk about the most memorable event, and that's probably my number one. Sometimes I talk about the, uh, the ear bite fight with uh, Tyson and Holyfield or, or Ty- Tyson Buster Douglas in Tokyo. But that one in Mexico, I, I think, surpasses them uh, with that massive crowd. I remember we were rehearsing earlier in the afternoon. They opened the doors real early, and I believe there were 15,000 people there during our rehearsal where I'm announcing in the ring, introducing Chavez, and people were still cheering then. <laughs> um, and I remember just getting there. It, it was like a, a, a festival, um, you know, with, with people getting there early and through the night. I would see the little fires throughout the the massive arena area or stadium, I should say. And they're, I think, cooking their food and, you know, um, you know, to get from onto the field of the soccer stadium, Estadio Azteca, they had a moat and they had uh, guards with guns around it and German shepherds in the moat to make sure that there was a separation between the masses up above in the seats and, and on the floor area. And, um, you know, I, I have a vivid memory of standing next to Don King right before uh, Haugen and Chavez were to walk. And we had a few minutes there. And there was a, a laser light show and a music show. And it was really well done. It was beautiful. It was, it was a, a, a moving piece with the masses of people there. And honestly, I looked at Don King and he was looking around, taking it in and and was kind of a little misty eyed. Like he was moved oh. by it. And I'm thinking if he's moved by it, I am too. <laughs> Until I realized that maybe he was counting the proceeds from the number of people that were sitting <laughs> And that might have made him cry. Oh, yeah. That would have made him miss the ice. Definitely. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but it was fun. And you know what? It, it was. It is a little bit more pressure to speak in front of a lot of people, whether it's a, a viewing audience or live. But, you know, I always try to be prepared. And when you're in the moment, you're not really looking far out into the masses of people. You're, you're just focusing on what you have to do and what's right in front of you, and you hope you do it right. So, uh, yeah, Chavez Haugen, you said, is, is one, of, uh, one of the first ones that comes to mind among your, your great memories and the, the ear bite, of course. And you, you've had so, mon- so many. Um, I, I, I love asking a, a good, tough, uh, would-you-rather type hypothetical question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire one at you here regarding some of the other memorable nights you've had. You were ringside for Corrales Castillo uh, and for all of the Vasquez Marquez fights. Um, if you could only pick one or the other to have been at, maybe the greatest fight ever or that whole series that ranks as one of the greatest rivalries ever, which would you choose? Yeah, that's a whew, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no free passes on this podcast. No easy questions. <laughs> you know what? Um, I would say that I would choose Corrales Castillo because that was just such a moment and such a fight, and and the way it ended, and the, the surprise and the drama behind that. While Vasquez Marquez, every all of their three fights, and I'm not looking at their fourth fight, right? 
all of their three fights, it just continued as one, as an amazing battle. One of the few times in my life that I was sitting ringside, looking and almost feeling the punches and seeing the damage. And it was a little bit scary. And it's so surprising Mm. for me to even say that out loud because I've seen so many fights, but it was just massive punishment. But the Corrales Castillo and the drama and how it ended, uh, you know, was such a memorable fight and, and such an exciting fight in the crowd. All of us just couldn't, you know, couldn't be more entertained by that fight. So I would choose that one. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was I was very fortunate to be ringside for that too. And and uh, as I recall, there were only about four thousand people in the arena. It was amazing, really. And I always say that, like years later, if you were to ask all the people, I'm sure who say they were there, there were probably about a hundred thousand people. If you were to ask around now. <laughs> yeah, and when you look at it, both of those both of those fights that you uh, had mentioned, there weren't huge huge crowds. Vasquez mm. Marquez, you know, weren't huge crowds either. And, um, but those who were there certainly were treated by it. And if, and if they were massive crowds, it would get even more attention. Yeah. So as you as we all know, of course, as you mentioned, Corrales Castillo had a fantastic definitive ending. Not all fights do. Every ring announcer has had the unfortunate duty of reading his share of bad decisions. And, and there's that moment where you're the person in the arena who knows the decision and nobody else does. And I'm wondering, have there, has there ever been one where you got handed the cards, you looked at the decision, you looked away, you had to look back again, thinking maybe you got it wrong, and you were maybe a little bit unnerved by the prospect of having to be the messenger of a truly <laughs> lousy decision? Yes, I have been in that position a number of times. Uh, as we see some controversies in boxing, I'm often given those. And I, I, there's a part of me that dreads it, and there's a part of me that I want to be the person to give the decision and give it as fair as possible. Mm. There is something I do when the decisions are, 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 maybe we've seen a good fight, but the decision is controversial. And this is something my father taught me and, and used to do that before I'd have to I'd say, you know, we've all seen an outstanding fight, no matter who the winner is, they deserve a round of applause and take some of the steam off of the crowd who is just about to get very bad news. <laughs> um, so I sometimes do that. Um, and many of the fights are, maybe aren't big fights. They are smaller fights where the decision is bad, but there was a big fight where the decision was bad. And that was Holyfield versus Lennox Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York City, and that was a very controversial decision. Everyone thought Lewis won, and, and that was not the case. And uh, so we had a draw on that. And um, yeah, I received those scorecards and was uh, very surprised, but it's my job to give it, and I'll give it as clearly as I possibly can. Do you have to have a poker face? Are you aware that people are watching you when you get the cards? <laughs> I am. In fact, there are a lot of people who try to look over my shoulder to try <laughs> uh-huh. to see the scorecards. A lot of the fight camps or the promoters, and I, I, I have to guard that. And I do try to keep a poker face. <laughs> well, may all your future fights be just decisions and clear knockouts. That's all I can say to you. Uh, Jimmy, I I can, we could talk to you for hours. It has been a real honor to have you as a guest. Uh, thank you so very much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast today. Well, Kieran and Eric, I thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure for me, and uh, I'd be honored to be back anytime. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you. 
so sometimes the boxing schedule gods give us a major fight on Thanksgiving. Uh, Barrera Morales three in yep. particular comes to mind, um, but it's usually not the biggest of boxing weekends, and, and that's certainly the case this year. So not a lot to preview this week. Uh, but on Saturday, November 30th, there are a few moderately significant fights on streaming networks. The notable one in America is in Las Vegas. Oscar Valdez moving up to 130 pounds to meet Andres Gutierrez. And on the same card, Carl Frampton, uh, hopefully in bubble wrap until the opening bell, <laughs> taking on Tyler McCreary. Uh, this would appear to be building toward a Valdez-Frampton fight if both of them win. Uh, also in Birmingham, England, Zolani Tete defends a bantamweight belt against Janriel Casamero. And in Monte Carlo, Monaco, one of the top female fighters in the world, Cecilia Brakus, defends every imaginable welterweight title belt against Victoria Bustos. Anything among those cards have you excited, Kieran? Uh, excited, not really, but certainly interested, I think. Um, I do like Oscar Valdez very much. It's been sort of interesting to watch him evolve from a technically sound boxer to a Gatti-esque brawler and then sort of trying to dial it back again to find a happy medium and like you said it does look like he and Frampton uh, might be on for a, a meeting um, and I am curious to see you know where Frampton is at I, I I thought that his peak would be a bit higher and longer than it's perhaps shown itself to be um, although that might be a bit unfair really I mean he's lost a couple of decisions to some very good fighters um, I do like the bantamweight fight it's interesting it's a damn shame that the Neri Rodriguez thing didn't happen because this and that and uh, Teti Casemiro would have been a, a couple of really good double headers of top 10-ish bantamweights looking, trying trying to almost fight an elimination series to see who can fight you know, in no way, right? Um, I like Tete. I think he's one, I think he's a really good fighter. He's on like a seven-year unbeaten streak. Um, so, yeah, I am intrigued by that. And I am always happy to watch our friend Cecilia Brakus. Um, so although nothing really leaps out to me, um, there, there are some pretty interesting fights there. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how Valdez and Frampton look at the new weight. Uh, you know, certainly more curious in how they look against each other, hopefully, early right. next year. Uh, that'll tell us more about whether one or both of them are, are threats to rise to the top of the division. But uh, as we've discussed, it's a very interesting division with Miguel Burchelt currently looking like the man to mm. beat, at least if Gervonta Davis is headed up to lightweight. Uh, really, from, from 126 to 135, there's a lot of talent right now. You, you kind of look at that weight range, not just at a single weight class. And, you know, you have Lomachenko as clearly the top dog, but they're a good eight to 10 talented fighters bunched together just below him. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up the show with the news of the week. And uh, my calendar says it's 2019, but that can't be right because the top stories revolve around Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather and when they're possibly both fighting next. Uh, Pacquiao is talking about a return to the ring in March or April. Uh, it will be his first fight since his excellent win over Keith Thurman. And the front runners to face him are Mikey Garcia and Danny Garcia. So some Garcia is getting paid. Uh, meanwhile, I'm not sure how seriously we should be taking this or how much airtime we should be giving it. But just days after saying he was definitely done with the brutal sport of boxing, Floyd Mayweather teased some sort of comeback in conjunction with Dana White. Uh, is it boxing? Is it MMA? Is it a promotional partnership that won't involve Floyd stepping into the ring? Or is it nothing at all? And he's just looking to create some headlines. 
Hell if I know. Uh, but <laughs> I feel like we have to mention it. Uh, Kieran, feel free to comment or not comment on whatever Floyd does or doesn't have planned. Uh, and any preference on your end for Pacquiao between Mikey Garcia and Danny Garcia? I feel like the only thing we can be certain of with Floyd is that if he ever comes out and says anything like this, it's going to be during a big fight week when... Yep. Other fighters are getting attention, and Floyd doesn't like it. It's amazing <laughs> to me how massively insecure he remains and how unable he is to be comfortable with anyone else getting any attention. Um, I suspect that's all that is, especially, like you said, <clears throat> the um, the fact that he claims there's going to be some kind of comeback two days after he said, oh, man, boxing's dangerous, and uh, I, I've, I've got to think about my health. You'll, you'll never see me in the ring. Uh so that makes me think the fact that Dana White retweeted what he said makes it a little bit interesting. Maybe there is some kind of promotional deal, but if he does, come, no, he's not coming back. But um, if he does, it's not going to be against anyone who can beat him. Um, and it's not. No, it's not going to be in the octagon. Um, not unless he wants to fight one of, one of us. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I guess there's a possibility if Manny fights a Garcia and wins but looks vulnerable, that Floyd might decide to go back to that well. But I don't know. I think mostly, I think we're, we're, we're doing what he wanted us to do, I think, by talking about him. That's, yeah. that's, all, that's all I'm, I think. Don't you, I mean, do you think there's anything more there? Uh, I, no, no, pr- probably not. You're absolutely right to point out that there's this this pattern he has of uh, <laughs> seeking seeking attention at very per- specific times. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And as for Manny, I, I guess Danny's the more attractive option, really, to me. I mean, he's he's more dangerous because of that left left hook. He's more of a natural sort of welterweight. Um, and at the same time, he's probably a bit better for Manny because he's a bit less mobile than than Mikey Garcia is. Mm. Um, and, and, and I don't know. Mikey is a welterweight attraction. that's a bit diminished after the, the Errol Spence fight. And so as great as he is, I'd like to see him reestablish his, you know, bona fides first, ideally down at 140 rather than at 147 against Manny Pacquiao. I think either would be intriguing, but I, I'm, I would be much more interested in Manny, Manny and Danny, frankly. <laughs> there you go. They put that on the poster. Manny, Danny sells itself. I guess, Done. To an extent. Done. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying about how, you know, Danny is certainly more established at the weight than, than Mikey and uh, not coming off, uh, you know, Mikey, Mikey coming off that basically shutout loss. But um, I still kind of think but they're both in that ra- perfect range like Keith Thurman was of, of guys mm-hmm. who would make for competitive fights with Pacquiao and aren't suicide for Manny to take on right. the way Crawford would be or assuming he's healthy Spence would be so I'd be down with it with either of those fights it, it, the people around Pacquiao know what they're doing with him yep. uh, if he insists on fighting into his 40s I think they have yep. their finger on which fighters are respectable and sellable opponents that he has a perfectly realistic chance of beating I think that's exactly right I think that's exactly right um hey talking of Danny's um, I <laughs> uh, said last week we were not done with the Daniel Jacobs, Julio Cesar Chavez story. And what do you know? Here we are. Um, so the Nevada State Athletic Commission met on Wednesday and extended Chavez's suspension for refusing to submit to a drug test. He's required to appear at a hearing in Nevada on December 18th. It is a bit problematic because that's just two days before he's supposed to face Jacobs in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, 
So I said, look, last week, let's just go ahead and make it Jacobs against Gabriel Rosado. Uh, there's, there's no way, right? Jacobs Chavez is happening on December 20th, right? No way, surely. <laughs> I'll never say never, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be pretty shocked now that Nevada has set this date of the 18th. You know, maybe if they scheduled Chavez for a hearing next week, you'd say, right. okay, well, this is going to get resolved one way or the other, but two days before the fight date yeah and they're clearly not budging right that was right. The, that was the only caveat that oh maybe they'll acquiesce but they're they're digging their heels in yeah yeah and, and as you said last week it's not worth it to eddie hearn to risk his license to promote nevada right. over julio cesar chavez jr right. it's, it's not worth it for any single fighter uh to to risk your but nevada license but right especially not chavez jr so yeah i mean rosado is scheduled to fight on the undercard the only reason not to just bump him up now is if Hearn and DAZN think that Chavez circus publicity is good for mm-hmm. Jacobs and will help promote Jacobs Rosado better than just announcing Jacobs Rosado would. But uh, yeah, no, Ch- Chavez Jacobs is a an enormous long shot to happen in 2019, in my view. Yeah. All right. Uh, and last news item, uh, Logan Paul is appealing the result of his... Nah, I'm just kidding. We're, we're not covering that. We don't care. Uh, our actual final news item is that Jaime Munguia is moving to 160 pounds facing Spike O'Sullivan on January 11th on DAZN. What do you think, Kieran? Decent opponent for Munguia at the new weight or quick and easy KO like it was for David Lemieux when he faced O'Sullivan? Uh, somewhere between the two, I think. Um, look, Munguia is going to be less effective at 160 than at 154, because, simply because so much of his success uh, at 154 over the last couple of years was his ability to just manhandle opponents, because um, he's such a big junior middleweight. Um, you know, but I think up against guys like a Sullivan, who perfectly solid, serviceable pro, but not really anything special, he, he'll continue to do fine. I, I don't see him doing just like what David Lemieux did. I don't think Munguia has that one-punch power that Lemieux does. Um, uh, so, but I can see him having, you know, probably too much energy, too much offense, too much activity for, for a guy like Spike. But yeah, I think it's a, that's the kind of level of guy that he's going to do well against at, at 160. Uh, I don't know that Mungia will, will do that well once he starts sort of going up the ladder at 160. Yep. Agreed. All right. That will do it for this episode, this free episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to Jimmy Lennon Jr. for his time and insights. I loved that. I loved having Jimmy Lennon on earlier. That was a lot of fun. Um, And a reminder, if you do not have Showtime, go to showtime.com slash try 30 and enter the code SHOWBOX to start your 30-day free trial. Uh, We will be back next week to preview the rematch to the upset of the year, Andy Ruiz, Anthony Joshua 2, as well as Showtime's December 7th triple header from Brooklyn, headlined by Jamal Charlo versus Dennis Hogan. And we're expecting a guest to join us as well. And we've actually been backing that up lately. So, uh, So do tune in next week. Until then, thanks for listening.